Thanks, Emily. I'm going to look again at uh, Romans 5, verse 12, if we can. Keep your Bibles open uh, as we look at that. Paul writes to the house churches in Rome, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. You know, the ripple effect of sin is tremendous. We've seen that just in this past year. Uh, the sin of one police officer putting his knee on the neck of a, of a man who was handcuffed already and killed him led to not only riots in Minnesota, but in Chicago, Portland, and Seattle. The, ri- the ripple effect of one sin is truly tremendous. We saw this in 1914 when uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated by a teenager's bullet. His death, his assassination, eventually led to World War I, one of the greatest conflicts our world has ever seen. The ripple effect of sin, one man's sin, is tremendous. I don't know how many times I've seen this in families. A, A husband commits an affair, breaks up a marriage, and a wife and children spend the rest of their lives trying to heal from the brokenness of that marriage. Yes, sin has a tremendous ripple effect. As we continue our journey through Genesis, we want to look at that original sin and how its impact, its one impact, has has really corrupted all of creation. So what is that sin exactly, and how can we make sure that we don't repeat that sin or any other type of sin? How can we make sure that we're the kind of people who seek to resist sin and the temptation that Satan tries to bring time and time again? To find out how we can resist temptation and what that sin was originally, in that original sin of Adam and Eve, I would encourage you to turn in your uh, Bibles or your iPhones or your Androids or whatever you use to Genesis chapter 3. Again, I'm sorry we don't have uh, pew Bibles. It's hard to sanitize those things uh, after service, so we'd rather just you bring your own Bible until this uh, pandemic ends or make sure you've got your phone with you if you've got an app there. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 3 as we continue our journey through the book of Genesis together. But before I read God's Word, Let's call upon his Holy Spirit to guide us in the reading and preaching of his Holy Word. Please join me as you pray. Holy Spirit, as Emily pointed out a moment ago, we are sinners in need of your grace. We've come to you in confession, confessing our sins both privately and corporately together. We recognize that we are not who you want us to be. We're not yet fully sanctified, living the lives you've called us to. And Lord, as we look at this text this morning, this original sin of humanity, I pray that you'd give us eyes to see what you want us to see, ears to hear what you want us to hear, and a heart that might be transformed and ultimately opened by the reading and preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Genesis chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Uh, Listen to God's word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. I want to pause there just for a moment. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Now for those of us who grew up in the church, we know who this serpent is, right? It's Satan. But Genesis 3 doesn't actually say that the serpent is Satan. So how did we come up with this idea that the serpent is actually Satan? Well, in the Reformed tradition, we have this understanding that, well, Scripture interprets Scripture, that an ultimate hermeneutic or rule of interpreting Scripture is that Scripture interprets Scripture, that if we read one passage of Scripture and it's not fully clear, that we continue reading because the same Holy Spirit who inspired Genesis to write the book of Genesis is the same Holy Spirit who inspired the author of Revelation. In fact, speaking of Revelation, 
If you turn to Revelation 12, verse 7 to 9, John the Apostle describes this vision he has of one of the great battles between good and evil. In Revelation 12, 7 9, we read this. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but he, the dragon, was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So your Sunday school teacher as a child was right. This serpent is Satan. Uh, we didn't make that up. That comes straight from Revelation 12, uh, verse 9. Let's continue reading about this serpent, Satan. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did you catch what Satan just did there? Did God actually say you'll not eat of any tree in the garden? Is that what God said? That's not what God said. Satan is trying to make God's laws and his rules seem more restrictive than they really are. Satan's trying to lead Adam and Eve because Adam's there. If this was written in West Texas language, it would have said you all. Did God really tell you all (laughs) that you're not supposed to eat from any tree? No, that's not what God said at all. That's not the rule. What is the rule exactly? Well, if we turn to Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse 16 to 17, I want to point out that this rule is given originally to Adam. Adam was the one who was given the rule. It was before Eve was even created, as we read about last week. But in Genesis 2, verse 16 to 17, we read this. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God is proving to be generous here. He's told them that you can eat of any tree of the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Satan wants Adam and Eve to believe that God is restrictive and confining and controlling rather than generous and loving. As I read about this, this idea that you can eat of any tree of the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil reminds me a little bit of the concept of tithing that we find in both Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Malachi and even Jesus affirms in Matthew 23. Now, the principle of tithing is that, you know, God asks us to, to give back 10% of what we, what we earn, and, and, and we know that all that we have is ultimately a gift from God, for we read in Psalm 24, verse 1, that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. God has created everything so that all that we have is ultimately a gift from God. Our life is a gift from God. Our minds, our abilities to earn income, it's ultimately all a gift from God, and so we're simply stewards of God's stuff. And then God, in his generosity, says, you know what, 90% of it? That's fine, do what you want, but, but if you could give 10% back, and specifically in the Old Testament we read to the temple or, or to the tabernacle, and did you know that tithing is actually a, what's well, a means of grace? It's a rule that God has given to us to actually encourage us to walk closer to him. You see, as we tithe, and as I know for me and my family, when we make the commitment to tithe, when we turn out a pledge card, which we'll ask you to do again in November, when I fill out a pledge card, we have to budget, we have to make plans on what we plan to give next year, and we, we start with the tithe. It's the first fruits, 10%, first and 10. If you're a football fan, you know first and 10, right? First down, 10 yards to go. Actually, it's first fruits and 10%, easy to remember. And we write that down as a commitment that we're going to make to God out of gratitude for what, all that God has given to us. And when I think about how God uses what we give, specifically how he's able to take what little I give, which is 10% of what we make, but we give it to him, he's able to multiply its effect and minister to so many 
many more. You may remember that about 10 years ago, our church made the commitment that we're going to be a tithing church, that we're always going to give at least 10% to local and global missions, and we now currently give 12%. We don't want to think tithing is the cap. In fact, as you look at the New Century Church, we can see they gave well above a tithe. Uh, Whenever anyone had a need, they gave all that they could in gratitude for what God had already given them because they look at Jesus and what God's given to us in Jesus. They said God gave us his all. We should give back. Well, as a church, we've made that commitment. We're always going to give at least 10% to local and global missions. And 10 years ago, we had about a dozen missionaries globally that we supported. As you leave this, great, this sanctuary today and walk by the Great Hall, I want you to look at the map. And if you add all the couples and everything together and all the missionaries, we have over 40 people that we're now supporting today. Truly amazing. And each one of these missionaries is able to, to take the resources we give to them to do their ministry wherever they might be, whether it be in Spain or in Iraq or in Ireland, they're able to take what we give and they're able to use those resources to feed their family, to allow them to focus on their main call, which is their ministry, and they're able to use that resource and able to minister to so many, many, many more, where lives are eternally changed for the kingdom of God. You know, all of us on this earth, we're only going to live so long in light of eternity. So the question is, what did we do with what we had? That's what Matthew 25 is all about, the parable of the talents. What did we do with what we were given? Well, God's been very generous, so I want to give back out of gratitude for what God has done for us. But Satan wants us to believe that God's stingy, right? Oh, man, he didn't. Did he say you couldn't eat of any tree? That's not at all what God has said to Adam and Eve, and that's not what God's saying to us. God's just saying give back so that you might grow. For where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. We give so we can grow. But I know today in the church, a lot of people struggle with that. So I would encourage you just to Bump it up 1%. If you're giving what the average church member in the United States gives, which is about 3%, add 1% more. Add 1% more. Get to 10%. And you'll find, as I have found, the joy of giving. I love doing my taxes these days because when I do my taxes, I can see all that we've given and I can see how God used that. And all praise goes to him. And I feel great gratitude for how God has allowed me to partner with him in ministry. Yes, our God is not stingy. He's not controlling. But Satan wants Adam and Eve to think he is. And so he says... Did God actually say you shall not eat any of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Did you see what Eve did there? She misquoted God's law. God's rule was real clear. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But she's added something to it. She said, no, you can't not eat it. You're not even supposed to touch it. If you touch it, then we'll, we'll surely die. Again, Eve is beginning to follow in this concept that God is more controlling than he really is. She doesn't understand that ultimately God's law is for our good. God loves us. And he gives us rules and regulations so that we might live in, in harmony with him and with one another. Yes, Eve is adding to God's law. She's not correctly quoting what God said, which is the first point of today's message on sin. If we want to avoid sin, we need to be real clear on what God's Word says. We need to be real clear about what God's Word says. Can you say that with me? We need to be clear about what God's Word says, because Satan will try to use Scripture to tempt us. Satan will even, he knows what the Bible says, and he'll try to spin it to fit what we want to hear, to what we want to believe. We see this in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4. After being baptized, Jesus goes into the wilderness. Luke records this as well as Matthew. Jesus goes into the wilderness to fast and pray for 40 days before launching his ministry. And after fasting and praying for many days, 
Satan appears and he begins to try to tempt Jesus. And in Matthew 4, 5 to 6, we read this. And the devil took him, Jesus, to the holy city, Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now Satan is trying to tempt Jesus to do something spectacular, to test God, to see if whether or not, well, what the, if the words of Psalm 91 are true. But the problem is, Satan has misrepresented this, the words of Psalm 91. Psalm 91, which Satan quotes, is really all about how God is our refuge and fortress, our ever-present help in times of trouble. In fact, in Psalm 91, verse 1, we read this, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. It says nothing about jumping off the pinnacle of a temple to try to prove God's faithfulness. No, that's not at all what God wants uh, for Adam. And even as we continue to read Psalm 91, we read in verse 9 and 10, right before the verses that Satan quotes, it says, Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. When we trust in God, when we rest in God as our refuge, our ever-present help in times of trouble, then God will protect us. He will watch over us. Psalm 91 says nothing about jumping off the pinnacle of a temple to try to prove whether or not verse 11 and 12 is true, which goes on to say, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways on their hands. They will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now Satan has taken scripture out of context and tried to use it to tempt Jesus to do the spectacular, ultimately to test God. But Jesus knows the Bible better than Satan. He knows very well that that's not at all what Psalm 91 means. And so Jesus responds to Satan's temptation by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6. In Matthew 4, 7, it says, Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. If we want to be clear about what God's word says, we need to read all of it, and we need to read it regularly. Then we will know when Satan comes with his temptations whether or not what he is saying is true because he's the father of lies, as Jesus tells us in John chapter 8. He is the one who wants to deceive us, to lead us astray, to misrepresent what Scripture teaches. And so we've got to read all of it. We've got to know what God's Word has to say so that we'll be clear and not misrepresent the Word of God. Of course, knowing God's Word is not enough to resist temptation. Not only do we need to know it, but ultimately... We need to trust God's word, knowing that God loves us. Can you say that with me? We need to trust God's word, knowing that God loves us. As we read God's word, we've got to understand that God's word is actually given for our good. It's in, given so that we might flourish in his creation. That God has given us commands so that we might be in a closer relationship with him. As we, as we avoid the idols of this world, as we honor the Sabbath as we're doing today and and. and, and praising him and him alone and, and allowing our relationships to be better formed as we look at the Ten Commandments by not stealing and not killing and not committing adultery and not coveting what our, others, what our, our neighbor has. No, God's commands are given to us for our good. We've got to know God's word. We've got to be clear about it. We've got to trust God's word knowing that God ultimately loves us. To see what I mean by that exactly, let's continue reading this great story. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, 
We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I I hid myself. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat, and all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever, Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to look again at verse 4, Genesis 3. But the serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now the irony of this text, if you remember from Genesis chapter 1 verse 28, is that God gave Adam and Eve, gave all of humanity dominion over the animals. The serpent should be reporting to Adam and Eve 
fact, if you were kind of in the business world and you put an org chart here, you've got God at the top of the org chart. He's the CEO. You've got Adam and Eve running as the vice president. And you've got Serpent, right, down below here among the peons. And for some reason, they're listening to their, to their supervisee rather than their supervisor. And when you don't listen to your supervisor in corporate America, you get fired, right? That was stupid. Why were you listening to a snake? Now, it's interesting a snake talks. But nonetheless... Why are you listening to the serpent? Why listen to a supervisee? You have dominion over the serpent. The serpent should be listening to you. Yet they're listening to the snake rather than to their supervisor, rather than to God. Why? I think it's because the snake is saying what they want to hear. The great sin of Adam and Eve is ultimately their pride. St. Augustine pointed this out many centuries ago. Calvin affirmed it. The great sin of Adam and Eve is is their pride. In their pride, they want to think they can live by their own rules. They don't have to abide by what God says. They're too proud to humbly submit to the one command of God. Satan knows this. And so he says, look how restrictive God is. He's telling you that you can't eat of any tree? Oh, well, he knows that if you eat of this tree, you'll be like God. And don't you want to be like God? Don't you want to be the CEO, not the vice president, right? Oh, man. Why is it that Adam and Eve decide to listen to the serpent rather than to God? Well, the serpent's saying what they want to hear. And how often can we be like that? We can surround ourselves with people who say what we really want to hear, right? For instance, someone offends us, someone hurts us, and Jesus is real clear in Matthew 18, if someone sins against you, you go talk to them one-on-one and you work it out one-on-one first, right? But rather than doing that, we go and talk about the person who offended us. We can get people surrounding us to affirm our feelings and yeah, yeah, this person's wrong and we, we demonize this other person or we demonize this other party or we, we just watch the news network that says what we want to hear, right? Wouldn't it be better if we actually, we listen to all the voices, but most importantly, we listen to God's voice first, And then it becomes the discerning voice and the ultimate voice in discerning for us what is true today. Not the voices of culture, not the voice of others, but the voice of God. Not the voice of Satan, the serpent, but the voice of God. Who are we listening to? Are we listening to God or are we listening to the serpent and the world today? Thursday, I was blessed to have lunch with uh, David and another uh, member of our staff, uh, and we had uh, lunch at Bracero's, great little Mexican restaurant on 6th Street. I saw Lulu Cowan there, sitting in the back, saw her at the, at the lunch, and we were kind of talking about seminary, and, and I mentioned that I went to Princeton Seminary, and I was reminded of, of what uh, President Gillespie said, the president of Princeton Seminary. When I first came to, to Princeton, uh, he gave a talk to our, our incoming class, and he said, you know, if you're conservative, which I am, because I'm from Midland, if you're conservative you're going to think this place is liberal. And if you're liberal, you're going to think this place is conservative because the truth is we hire professors from many different denominations, from many different backgrounds, from many different theological perspectives, but we all declare that Jesus is Lord. And in your time here, you're going to find that the body of Christ, the church, is more diverse than you may initially want to believe. As I was talking to David and Kim, I, I shared that, you know, one of the blessings of that experience was that it learned me, it learned, it taught me uh, how to articulate what it is I believe. As I would hear the ideas of others, it made me stronger in what I believe so that I might voice that and communicate that. In fact, one of my good friends from the First Presbyterian Church of San Antonio, uh, a guy named Scott Coons, who's a wonderful evangelical, he was a classmate of mine, he said this to me about Princeton. He said, you know, Princeton didn't change my theology, but it made me more compassionate. As I really listened 
to what other people had to say, but I was able to discern what God's word says, and I was able to offer a word of truth in love. Truth in love. We were called to listen to God's word, and we should listen to what others have to say, but ultimately we need to communicate the truth in love. Yes, we need to trust God's word. We need to trust that God's word is actually for our good. But Adam and Eve, for some reason, have forgotten that God's word is is for their good. Somehow they've forgotten. See, we, we trust God's word because we know that God loves us, and yet somehow Adam and Eve have forgotten how much God loves them. I mean, all that Adam and Eve have is ultimately a gift from God. God has been demonstrating to them time and time again just how much he loves them. For, for he created them. He breathed life into them. And when Adam was all by himself alone with no one else to help him, God made Eve. And when, and when Adam saw it, Eve, he said, whoa, man, I mean, I like this. This is great. Thank you, God, right? I mean, he had all that he needed in Eve and, and in, with Communion with God in the garden, with, with fruit from trees, every tree but one he could eat from. It was amazing. God had shown them time and time again just how much he loved them, so they should have known that God's one rule was for their good. You know, when you know someone loves you, when they give you a rule or a restriction, we should be willing to obey it because we know that God, they love us, and ultimately it's for our, our good. So then why is it that we, who study the Bible and read God's word, we can see what God's word has to say, and yet we don't always obey or we're resistant to obey. In our pride, we'd rather listen to what the serpent has to say rather than what the word of God has to say. We need to be clear about what God's word says, and we need to trust God's word, knowing that God loves us. And if we ever question God's love, or if we ever question whether or not God's word is for our good, let's just remind ourselves of how much God loves us. By looking at the cross. That God and the good news of Jesus is that God doesn't abandon us in our sin. No, he, he cast Adam and Eve out of the garden. All of corruption was created. We now live in a world that is corrupted by sin, but God doesn't leave us. He actually becomes one of us. As our stained glass window points out, Jesus, who was born of a virgin, as we're going to state here in the Apostles' Creed in just a moment, Jesus, who was born of a virgin, a virgin Mary, who was, who's the Holy Spirit came upon so that she might give birthed miraculously to a child born in a lowly, humble manger. He grew up among us and he began to teach us and he began to heal us and ultimately he did for us what we can never do for ourselves. He lived in perfect obedience to God's word. As Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he did not come to abolish the law but ultimately to fulfill it. And so he fulfilled the moral law by doing everything that his heavenly father told him to do and he fulfilled the sacrificial requirements of the law by dying as that perfect sacrifice on a cross. And then the third day he rose again conquering both sin and death on our behalf so that he fulfills what Genesis 3 verse 15 has to say, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head. Jesus a descendant of Adam and Eve. In fact, if you read the Gospel of Luke, Luke traces the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam and Eve because Adam and Eve will eventually have a son named Seth and Jesus is a descendant of, of Seth. He shall bruise your head. He shall bruise his heel. Jesus conquered Satan on our behalf when he rose again, proving to be more powerful than sin and death itself so that we are no longer slaves to sin, but now we can live as, as children of righteousness. 
It's just as Paul was pointing out in Romans chapter 5. One man's sin had a horrible ripple effect of corrupting all of creation, yet one man's act of pure righteousness was even greater still. The act of Christ with his death on the cross and the resurrection on the third day gives us hope to know that we can live in a new life and have the assurance of eternal life that death will not have the final say for those of us who call upon the name of the Lord. As we look at the cross, we can see just how much God loves us. He doesn't love us this much, he loves us this much. And if God loves us that much, then the rules that he gives us to live by are for our good. So, to avoid sin, we need to be clear about what God's word has to say. We need to trust God's word, knowing that God loves us. And finally, we need to obey God's word. Let's say those three together. We need to be clear about what God's word says. We need to trust God's word, knowing that God loves us. We need to obey God's word. Specifically, when I, I think of the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, we need to obey the words of Jesus. In fact, uh, starting Wednesday night, David Mull and I are going to be teaching a class on the Sermon on the Mount where we really look at Matthew 5, 6, and 7 very closely. And we can see in the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes it very clear on what his will is for our lives. We're called to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Above all things, we're called to invest in the kingdom of God, not the things of this world, but invest in the kingdom of God to the glory of God. We're called to pray for our enemies and those who persecute us. We're called to turn the other cheek. We're called to be peacemakers who go the extra mile, who do all that we can to be reconciled to those who have a charge against us so that we meet with them before we come to worship. We, we seek to be reconciled to those who have issues and charges, legitimate charges against us. Yes, Jesus makes it very clear in the Sermon on the Mount that what we are called to do is to treat others the way that we would like to be treated with the golden rule. We are called to build our house upon the solid rock of Christ Jesus and what his word has to say. So the next time we find ourselves being led astray or tempted to sin, let's go back to God's word and be clear about what he says. Let's trust God's word knowing that God loves us he gave us his son so that we might be saved. And this loving God has given us rules so that we might grow and flourish under him. And then guided by the Holy Spirit, may we obey. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you. We thank you so much that you didn't abandon us in our sin. That while it's true you cast Adam and Eve out of the garden, you didn't leave them completely. In fact, in your son Jesus, we say that you became one of us so that many might be saved. We thank you, Lord, for his great sacrifice and how you demonstrate your great love for all of us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so we know the rules and the regulations and the guidelines and the directions that you have given to us are for our good because you are a God who loves us. So the next time Satan tries to tempt us or we listen to the words of culture by chasing after the idols of this world, Lord, help us to cling to your word, to be clear on what your word has to say. May we trust your word knowing that you love us. and By your Holy Spirit, help us to obey. So that as Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 16, others may see our good deeds and give praises to you, our Father who's in heaven. Lord, this morning we want to lift up our brothers and sisters who are struggling. We pray for Leslie Robinson, who is now in hospice care. We pray peace for John and the entire family in this difficult time. We pray for Tracy Carr, who had surgery and the doctors removed most of the t tumor. She's walking up and around her room. We praise you for that progress. Pray for healing uh, that sh as she begins radiation. We pray, Lord, for Lonnie Trout, 
who's going through radiation and chemo right now. Pray for Angela Ripley having more seizures. Pray for Robin Wilson, who's lost and needs Jesus. Lord, you know where Robin is. You know how to reach her. So, Lord, I pray by your spirit you would put people in her life to bring her to you. Pray for the state of California with all the wildfires. Lord, we pray for those who are struggling to rebuild in Louisiana and East Texas after Hurricane Laura. God, we pray for wisdom for governors and congressmen and senators and our president. We, Lord, we pray for our country that is so divided right now. We pray that the church would rise up as it did this last Sunday at the Uniting is One event at uh, Hodgetown. We pray that the church might rise up and point to the unity that we have in Christ, the Prince of Peace, and you'd help us to be peacemakers as you've called us to be. For blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons and daughters of God. Lord, help us to live out what you've called us to by your Holy Spirit so that you might receive all the glory. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ, and all God's people said, Amen.